0: Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can approach the throne of grace this morning because of the purchasing power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we're reminded of that moment in history that we remember at Christmas time where the Sacred Chronicle, Lord, received its glorious chapter of incarnation where our conquering Lord with messianic supremacy routed every enemy that stood in our path of reconciliation with Almighty God. And our champion, Jesus Christ, astride His white stallion, victoriously defeated Satan, sin, and the foes of death and hell that would stand between us and a reuniting with glorious fellowship, Before the throne of Almighty God, so we one day might stand in your presence, not incinerated because of our sin, intolerable to the holiness of God, but justified and pure and washed entirely clean and white with the robes of righteousness, representing the imputed glory and righteousness of Jesus Christ washing every sin away. These are the glorious thoughts to which we offer to you as worship today, Heavenly Father. These are the things that we're reminded of as we open your Scriptures. We could never approach you if you had not made a way. And we would never love you if you hadn't first loved us. We would never seek your face if your Holy Spirit didn't sovereignly implant a desire. Stronger than sin, to press us towards the mark of the prize of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. And to ever work in our hearts to sanctify us toward the image of Jesus Christ our Lord. But because of your miraculous work, and because we have your word in hand today, it is our lamp and our light, and it is our tether to truth, and we thank you for it. And we pray now that as we read these scriptures and seek to apply them to our heart, that it would be again the Spirit's work and not the wisdom of man that emphasizes the truth to our soul today, that Jesus Christ might be glorified and that we might decrease. I thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Worshiping the Lord for His favor today and giving us the ability once again to meet together and worship before Him and also to open His Word. I would encourage you to turn with me to Psalm 32. Later in the message, as we bring it to a close, after we discuss this amazing psalm, there will be two other references for you. Romans 4, verses 5-8 through directly quotes Psalm 32. And then we'll close, Lord willing, in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. As you're turning to Psalm 32, I want to draw your attention to some contextual details that undergird and surround this psalm that we know from greater Scripture and this psalm itself through the life of David and through the record that we have in front of us today. The contextual richness and viscosity, if you will, that is how dense and thick just these 11 verses are, is absolutely staggering to whatever a mere man could come up with in beauty of poetic description and in theological weight and doctrine. And so many psalms, all of them in fact, this could be said. The contextual richness of Psalm 32 is staggering, the spirit enlightened mind the didactic context of Psalm 32 that is its ability to teach and instruct us especially as to righteousness and morality to straighten out our crooked thinking according to God's holy standards the didactic context of Psalm 32 heralds the redemptive pattern of authentic confession and contrition It declares, it promotes, it establishes, it reiterates for us the redemptive pattern of authentic confession and contrition. Its title denotes instruction as a maskil, which is a word that's a little mysterious to us but seems to denote wisdom. There's wisdom elements, wisdom literature as a genre in Scripture is most prevalent perhaps in Proverbs, but it appears in the Psalms also, and it appears in portions of this Psalm, shades of wisdom literature that instruct us in truth. And indeed the voice of the Lord Himself interjects David's own record and responds in a sort of exchange of voices. And we'll see that later on as we go in plummets depths. Its content, the content content of Psalm 32, like the Beatitudes of Matthew 5, verses 2 through 12, guide us from brokenness to bounty, from repentance to rejoicing, from contrition to celebration, from humility to hope, in 11 incomparably rich verses. Just one of those amazing details in the providence of God that there's 11 verses in Psalm 32 and there's 11 verses in the Beatitudes and they begin with the same word, blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit as we recall from Matthew 5 for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed we hear again in Psalm 32 <clears throat> verse 1 is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And the scope or the arc of confession that begins with this brokenheartedness and ends with celebration as also paralleled in Matthew's Gospel. Remember that we are, even though we are under duress and persecution, to rejoice to be counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name's sake. And so at the end of Psalm 32, we're commanded, Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart so we see the fingerprint in this forensic analysis of God's handwriting all over the scriptures but today just highlighting those two portions Psalm 32 and Matthew 5 we see some of the additional density and depth of what this psalm contains for us today a couple more notes of context that's the didactic context if you will the teaching, instruction, and morality and righteousness context. But secondly, I beg you to consider the biographical context of Psalm 32. Remember its author. Again, in the title, A Maskil of David. We discussed a little bit in morning prayer this today, this very day, upon a question raised by Tim Why is it so in the providence of God that a man with such extreme and dramatic sinfulness as it is as is recorded in David's life in the Uriah incident, why is it that a man like that, with a sordid record as he has, is also commissioned by God in his sovereignty to write some of the most amazing literature in Scripture and certainly the most glorious poetry ever, to bleed from the pen of a mere mortal? Questions like that beg us to dig deeper into the heart of Almighty God that seeks in His inscrutable wisdom to commission those who most dramatically display His redemptive, glorious, life-saving, gracious power. And just one reason that David seems chosen as a man best equipped by the Spirit of God and in his experience to give us these penitent or repentant words. So that biographical context comes to mind David knows what he's talking about because he knows the depths of depravity and sin. Here it seems that David maybe is a year or so removed or maybe this is the end of that year or so of unconfessed sin after David had committed a number of gross atrocities against the righteous law of God where he had lied, committed deceit, where he had misled numbers of people where he had committed murder and adultery and perjury and so on, and then suppressed the conviction and unrighteousness for a year until such time as God graciously brought it to his attention through the prophet Nathan. It's not as if this Uriah incident was David's only sin. We're reminded that David himself was a sinner like each of us are. But this was a uniquely dark hour in David's experience on the onset and consequently and conversely a uniquely glorious resolve when God brought him through this time of darkness and the depths of sin to resurrection life through repentance and hope and newness of joy again. As the joy of his salvation was returned, it was a particularly dark chapter in David's life marked by insidious self deception. As we read in chapter 2, the second half, when a righteous person or a blessed man is described, this is one descriptive phrase in whose spirit there is no deceit, in whose spirit There is no deceit. And there was, as you remember in the biography of David, a year at least where that could not be said of him. As he in his deception hid from the onlookers and even lied to himself before the presence of God. The darkness and the depth and the weight of his own sin. And so it is that the darkness of David's hour of struggle with his sin was compounded by self-justification attempts, attempting to cover over his own sin through blasphemous, aberrant means of hiding under something that is not the justifying power of Almighty God to run away from the consequences of his sin. That's the biographical context that it seems this psalm is written in. Thirdly, there's the literary context. This a penitent psalm perhaps to chronologically follow Psalm 51. You can turn there if you like, but in Psalm 51, this is another psalm that is delivered in similar tone. It's also given to the choir master as worship, but it's written by David, the same author, and the title is very clear about the context here. Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. So this psalm was written when Nathan... Confronted David as to his sin. David writes 51.1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And that is his anguished prayer request. That really is the theme of this psalm. Later, we pick up in verse 12. As his anguished cry asks for a few more things, to restore, or restore to me, he says, the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He makes a commitment and a vow upon that prayer request answered in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. So in the literary context, you could see how easily Psalm 32 could follow chronologically. Psalm 51, where David has cried, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. We see his joy, we hear it restored in Psalm 32. Where David has made a vow at that time, at such time as you intervene. And replace this heart of stone with heart of flesh. Then I will teach sinners. I will teach transgressors your ways. And so it is in this didactic Psalm, Psalm 32 that David is instructing us and all sinners who have ears to hear in the ways of Almighty God. And finally when he says, Lord open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise in verse 15. Which, was fo- which followed verse 14, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. So it is. David praises the Lord in Psalm 32. And that's something of the literary context that surrounds this glorious moment in the Psalms. And finally, the poetic context. The structural symmetry is composed in Psalm 32 of six groups of triad ideas, thoughts, or concepts. So triad is simply this group of three. So, I'll use that label more than once, six times at least, in this message to describe three parallel ideas. The first example is in verses 1 and 2. Notice that sin is referred to as transgression, sin, and iniquity, a triad of the description of sin. The poetic context here is a symmetrical one that includes these groups of three, three parallel ideas that describe different aspects in the course of this psalm, which really describes to us kind of a full picture of biblical repentance and contrition. So these six groups of three are arranged in four sections identified between laws. So notice in the bottom of verse 4, it's conclusion with a law, the bottom of 5, law again, and then 7, law. So if we use those as delineating marks, we have four easy sections that we can perhaps use to understand, order, and digest this psalm. But in between these psalms, as I mentioned, are these triads. There's two in the first section, one in the next, one in the following, one in the third. I'm sorry, one in the second, one in the third, and then there's two in the fourth So that gives you just an idea of the beauty of the poetry here. There's a symmetry to it. This psalm is crafted as if a sculptor were to go at the clay and over time create just a beautiful image that would remind us something of the nature and character of God in as much as he had captured a form of God's beauty and creativity from nature. But here David crafts with his pen a beautiful artistic rendering of the nature and character of God, a God who is orderly, symmetrical, he's methodic and planned, he foreordains, he executes, and the beauty of the full scope of his revelation is such that the the deeper we dig, the more glories are unveiled. And David writes in this way. A brief parenthetical point here on linguistics and God's providence and Hebrew poetry. I've probably mentioned this before, but hopefully you would judge it bears repeating. Notice in Hebrew poetry something unique. We don't have meter as we typically do in our poetry today the same way. There may be some but it's harder to translate. We don't have rhyme in the same sense that we have in a poetry today, like roses are reds, violets are blue, and then that rhymes with you. I don't even remember that poem. But in modern poetry, we have these kind of forms that are familiar to us in our culture. Hebrew poetry is a little bit different. But consider for a moment the sovereign reasons why. These parallel ideas These triad concepts that I'm giving to you today or trying to identify for you today are actually translatable from language to language. In other forms of poetry, it's very hard to translate it from one language to the next. But in Hebrew poetry, something of the beauty of its form can be translated to us even in English, though we're unfamiliar with its original tongue. And I just think that speaks to the sovereign providence of our God, communicating to us graciously a language removed and many generations, centuries, in fact, removed the beauty of the poetic context and content of this psalm. As a whole, this psalm answers us along the... Or it, this psalm sweeps us along as we move in this course of confession from a Job-like experience the gnawing pestilence of unconfessed sin to the joy of blessed assurance in a stunning poetic masterpiece. Thomas Watson called this psalm the godly man's picture drawn with a scriptural pencil. Isn't that a, un- a beautiful way to describe it? The godly man's picture. or You could say the picture of a godly man drawn with a scriptural pencil. Now I'll give you a heading under which we'll consider these four sections briefly. Let us consider the beauty of Psalm 32 according to its four sections. And remember too with another commentator that confessing sin, as is the theme here, brings glory to God's justice, His mercy, and His omniscience. Remember how God is glorified in the psalm. In at least those three ways, his justice, his mercy, and his omniscience are affirmed and emphasized when we, as broken sinners, admit as much by declaring ourselves as falling short, throwing ourselves upon his good graces, and recognizing in the fear of him that he sees all. Now, if we find ourselves relating to the course of confession, From verse 1 to 11, to some degree with David, I think the concluding and overriding thought, consoling and comforting sense that we will hold as treasure is something of a blessed assurance. And that's the title of this message today, a blessed assurance. We begin with the word blessed, again verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. We close with a righteous overflowing or a uh, joyful overflowing from the righteous who have received this blessed assurance of sin washed away. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. Why would they? Because they have the blessed assurance of salvation, of reconciliation, of cleansing from sin. Thus enabling them in the final phrase of this psalm to shout for joy because of their uprightness in heart. So that being kind of an overview of the entirety there, blessed assurance, perhaps a great theme of this psalm, let's consider a secondary theme, point number one, and section number one of this psalm, we'll label it the confines of sin. The confines of sin, verses one through four, reading again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. There's two triads in this section. The first is a description of sin. The essence of of sin is described by three terms. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. The second triad reveals to us the effects of sin. David says in three ways how sin affected him. His bones wasted away. He was groaning all day long. And his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. These verses 1 through 4 really let the reader feel the anguish effects of sin. They really remind us, cutting through the fog of our own self deception with the clarity of God's holy word, which is like a two edged sword to divide between incorrect thinking and that which emphasizes truth. It reminds us of how horrible and heinous crimes against the Almighty are, and also reminds us of the effects of these sins, should they remain unresolved in the consciousness, in the life, and even in the framework, the physical framework of an individual. This is a sort of unassured anguish that gnaws at the soul of a human being that despite our every effort to pacify is impossible ultimately to eradicate from us, saved by the grace of God. It should be noted that in our culture, how many, we could ask this hypothetical question, how many markets are driven by a demographic who is willing to purchase numbing effects for the anguish of the soul? How many things do we purchase, pursue, peruse, and indulge in culture that at their base level are motivated by a desire to escape from the effects of our own unrighteousness but deny the only true way of deliverance which is salvation in Jesus blood alone it's impossible to measure that but i'm sure you would be i'm sure you would agree with me that the vast majority of especially discretionary and, and entertainment products offered to us and all these mediums to distract and to entertain our soul fundamentally in most cases are governed by this desire to deal with an intense anguish, but almost in every case they are nothing more than a masking mechanism an anesthetizing drug that simply only, that, that, that simply entrenches us more and more in the depression and in the negative effects of our sin, never really granting relief. Well, what is the answer for someone in that state? Well, they certainly need a dose of reality. Any of us, should we suffer under some of these escape mechanisms and embrace the self-deception that David describes as deceit within our spirit? We have only one place to turn to cut through that fog. And it is to a passage of Scripture like Psalm 32. And when we read it, we ought to ask the Lord to grant us eyes to see and ears to hear and that we would take this internally (coughs) and let it be that mirror of God's holy law that would reveal to us the error of our ways, remind us of the intensity of our transgression and its effects, and move us towards legitimate Repentance and the true answer to the confines of sin. I remember a picture, I must have come across it in an encyclopedia. And they were under a heading of psychology or something in this last century. Maybe under the influences of Freud or others who were writing as to the human psyche. There were scientific experiments that were going on to try to understand how human beings were wired. Well, I remember one picture, and this was years ago, and it stuck in my mind for a reason, because it communicated a kind of visceral anguish that just left me with this feeling, this is just wrong. And what these scientists were studying was the effects of uncertainty on the nascent or the infant mind. When a baby is just born, when do they first sense fear? And what these scientists did is they put babies who could just barely crawl onto a sheet of glass. Now, it was very safe, mind you. The glass was, you know, something like three-quarter inch thick. There was no real danger of them falling through. But as this little baby who could just barely crawl was caught in this uncertainty, in this unassured anguish, you could see the look on his face of terror and fear as he was bawling his eyes out and his mouth was agape in horror. He did not feel safe. He longed for the comforting assurance of his mother's arms. He didn't understand where he was. Now, even though in reality he was safe, there was something that was not complete in that picture. The baby had no comfort. The baby had no consolation. Because although he wasn't going to fall, he didn't know it. And I am reminded at that picture of the Bible's glorious promise, not only that we will be safe, but that we can know it. Of the assurance that is available in the cross of Jesus Christ to set us free from the debilitating, destructive, and hell-bent effects of sin. But keep that picture in your mind of a child that is unaware of his surroundings and doesn't have the assurance of where he stands and is fearful that he might be destroyed in an instant as we read David's reaction to his own sin. He said in verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And these were the wasting effects of unassured anguish that David dealt with in this state where he needed to confess but hadn't quite got around to it. He hadn't confessed or the Spirit of God hadn't cut through the deceit of his own soul to bring him to that sense that my only assurance is in the safekeeping of God Almighty. I must throw myself upon His mercy. And he describes this in these terms. In the Hebrew, I'm told that this groaning all day long could also be referred to as a roaring, a crying out, a guttural response from the depths of the soul of absolute pain. Crying out in anguish and screaming. I won't illustrate it for you, but I'm sure you can imagine. And these were the effects of sin that David felt at the point when he was led to confession. A wasting of the bones, that is a shaking of his very framework, a groaning all day long, an utter isolation from any means of consolation, from any means of peace. And then thirdly, he said, his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The geographic connotations of the author come to mind here in my research studying for this message, I was told of a period of time, 12 years in duration during the 1800s, where it only rained twice in Jerusalem between the months of May and October. That is to say that very commonly in the summer months in the area of the region where David was writing, that there is little to no rain for months on end during the summer time. And you can imagine the effects that that would have on the land. And then when David compares this to his own soul and says, My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It's as if his soul was cracked and broken open, longing for the refreshing rains to soften the soil again. But the longer he ra- waited, the only, the only deeper the cracks became as the roasting and beating and desertification effects of his iniquity parched his soul with thirst for God Almighty, his only hope of refreshing rejuvenation. And so these are the confines of sin that we read of in verses one through four. They're described in this sense of unassured anguish and this double triad to describe the conditions. There's a transgression, David had crossed over prohibited boundaries in his walk beneath the Lord. And under God's watchful eye, David had strayed far off the path. His, his situation was described of rightly as sin, missing the mark, not following God's commands. But even more than that, additionally described as an iniquity, a moral distortion, and a perversion, a crookedness of soul. A crookedness that needed to be straightened out. Thus we see the essence of sin and the effects of sin listed here in verses 1-4 through that illustrate to us the confines of sin. Now on this desolate landscape of the soul, we hear the first and feel the first as we read and relate to David's plight, pitter pattering of the refreshing rain of the Holy Spirit in verse 5, which leads me to my second point. Confession and absolution. In verse 5, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. The next phrase, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Reading again because this turning point is so amazing. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, "I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin." Mind you, it took some 12 months plus as far as we know for David to come to this point. But how long did it take for God to grant absolution? It's immediate as soon as David confessed his sin as soon as he ran from the counterfeit self-justification, as soon as he acknowledged before Almighty's omniscient eyes, I am in violation of your commands. I throw myself upon the mercy seat of your favor then immediately. It says here that he was forgiven of the iniquity of his sin you've noticed a third triad here i trust first of all the sin triad reappears the sin is referred to again as sin iniquity and transgression but notice what is gloriously paralleled alongside right alongside this triad of sin is the triad of confession i acknowledged my sin I did not cover my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions. If we want to know what confession looks like, those three terms would well apply. An acknowledgement of sin, a refusal to cover it by aberrant means anymore, and a confession of our transgressions. I wanted to highlight with particular attention Number two in that sequence, I did not cover my iniquity. You know, the reality of sin can is undeniable. Man claims to be an atheist, they claim to be an agnostic. I don't buy, I don't abide by your premise, I don't, I don't use your terms, I speak a different ethical, moral language than you, Christian, the world says, in their foolishness. But because God cannot ultimately deny it, because his truths are as true as gravity itself. That is, his moral laws are as undeniable as the fool who says I can fly and jumps off a 100-foot skyscraper. Man, nevertheless, in spite of his denial, suffers under the effects of sin every moment of his existence. And though in his denial he can pretend he doesn't feel its weight here, soon as this breath of life is over, he will suffer the weight of the wrath of God justly levied against that transgression for an eternity of flame and gnashing of teeth and gnawing of the soul. David describes hellish conditions when he says, my bones were wasting away and I was groaning all day long. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer, but as deep as David felt the effects of unconfessed sin, there is no possible way. He could have even felt a fraction of the extent of, what will be felt in hell by every soul that does not avail himself of the only means of justification the Bible goes on to describe those conditions as a gnashing of the teeth a crying out for deliverance that is never answered and the heat of the flames of perdition only rising to higher levels scorching the skin only to be scorched again And it's an unimaginable circumstance that David was dealing with and proclaiming and speaking to, but even more unimaginable still what awaits the unrepentant soul in the afterlife. But as deep and as broad and as heinous and fearful as these consequences for sin are, it is just so amazing by contrast to see how, in a breath of the Almighty's absolution, they are wiped away in a moment. In a moment. Now, because as I mentioned, man cannot escape the consequences of sin. And as we mentioned before, much of society actually peddles means, false means, to suppress it. As Romans 1 says, that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What are all these attempts? to deny or to escape or to indulge a deceit of spirit that says i am not a sinner or even if you think i am i feel quite fine thank you i'm enjoying life in fact i'm not interested in sitting through an hour on a sunday listening to how bad i am when i can be partying out here as if i had the whole world uh, by the tail and was you know and just enjoying this drunken mirth and revelry with my friends well every attempt to deny is a false attempt to atone every time we say there is not a problem what are we doing we're compounding our guilt by covering our own iniquity and david had suffered under the effects of that long enough and by god's grace felt it strong enough that he was going to refuse to do that anymore i did not cover at the point of his confession my iniquity I refuse to run to any other atonement means any other scapegoat any other blasphemy that says there is another way to deal with sin than the life-saving and sin cleansing blood of Jesus Christ our Lord finally in noting on confession of transgressions the theme is of course picked up in the New Testament and we remember in first John 1 9 That if we confess our sins, he is indeed faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there fulfilled in Christ and manifest in the soul of every believer is the same promise that David received, the same experience, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, but it goes further, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, even as David celebrates his own righteousness of verse 11, and those who join him in his penitent prayer, all you upright in heart. So between the Selahs, we've covered two sections. First, the confines of sin, Selah. And secondly, confession and absolution, that is, our sins absolved, washed away, forgiven. And then we have the second law, And that brings us to section number three. And in interest of keeping all of these beginning with C, and also as a shout-out to my young son Israel, I've named this one Citadel of Salvation. Israel loves castles. He got a new one for Christmas, and my wife and I splurged and bought him like this deluxe model. It unfolds to about 36 inches. As I recall, it might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but there's a gate on the front, and if you push a button, these iron uh, claws come out, grab the gate and close it, and these steel wings come over the windows, and this voice from behind the castle uh, utters, Protect the castle! And it's this idea that as long as you're behind that fortress, all the bad guys that he has lined up in front of it There's no way they're getting through. The castle is intimidating. It's got this like steel hawk head and these wings that come down and these imposing claws that say this far and no further. Now that's one thing if you're picturing it as a toy. But picture that in the spirit realm, if you will. And you have something like the picture that David uses to describe how strong your salvation is. Your salvation, believer, is a citadel, is a castle, is a bulwark. As we sing in the hymn, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, never failing. And if the Lord commissions His own zeal and His own angels to protect the castle, there is no enemy that can penetrate the soul anymore. It's a glorious picture that we read of here as we pick up in verses 6 and 7. Listen to the citadel of salvation, how it's described. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach Him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And you might have guessed we have here Triad number four. We'll call it the castle triad. Verse 7, you are a hiding place. You preserve me. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Three ways. A threefold way of describing the security of the salvation that David felt upon the forgiveness of his own sins. Furthermore, in this section we see that there is a window of opportunity that is a finite time frame. It's as if a window of opportunity will lead to the doorway of deliverance. This is emphasized in verse 4, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. There's a number of allusions that may come to your mind here. Imagine, for instance, the time where salvation was available when Noah was constructing the ark. As near as we can figure a century plus, the door remained open. But there was a time, a finite window of availability for people to recognize that an ark had been prepared to bring them through the waters of judgment. But that time was limited. Those days were numbered. And what happened as the rains began to fall? The door of that ark, which represents our salvation, was closed. It was closed, shut. Now that door meant two things. For those in the ark, it meant that the citadel of salvation was impregnable by the waters of judgment. But for those outside the ark, it meant that the only means of safety, the only means of salvation, that door was closed, never to open again. So you see the contrast of situations here. For those that are in Christ, we could not have a safer, more assured situation than hiding behind the bulwark of our faith, our conqueror whose messianic supremacy defeated our worst enemies and who erects an impregnable wall of salvation for his people. But for those who do not have that assurance of salvation in Christ, and if that's you today, pay heed, you do not know when that window will close, for those who It's a different situation entirely. It means that the days of opportunity are numbered. And this is why the New Testament echoes with another allusion. Today is the day of salvation. God promises you salvation if you confess as David did, but he does not promise you tomorrow. And when that door is closed, there is no turning back. The sheep and goats are separated, and that is the end have this description and juxtaposition of situations under the third point citadel of salvation just one other detail to bring to your attention when David speaks of the rush of great waters that shall not reach him again there's probably a geographical reference there in judges you don't need to turn there but you can mark this for later study 521 the river Kashan, I believe, is the, t- is the way you pronounce it, is referred to in the psalm, of, or the a song, the victory song of Deborah and Barak upon the routing of the foes, and the, specifically the, the destruction of the king at that time that was threatening God's people. Well, as they're celebrating this deliverance in this great song, it's similar to this celebration of deliverance that David speaks about. And there's also a reference to the flood-wrought waters. Of this river Kishon, and when these rivers, as you can imagine, as I referred to before, in an utterly dry and wasteland, had endured so many months of receding, when the rainy season finally did come, after that agonizing stretch from say May to October in the Near East, when the waters finally did begin to fall off the mountains and the torrential rains that would rejuvenate the land began to rush into the basins once again, it was dramatic. As dramatic as the desert had been for the months prior. They would come as flash floods. And if you stood in the way, there's no way that you could survive the torrent. And this is the picture of the rush of great waters here. Though there is, behind a dam of God's provenient grace, waters of judgment that will rush in to a land that is famished for the justice of God to rectify the sins that he has endured and long suffered for so long in the history of mankind though there is an appointed time of that inrush of God's justice there is safety for his elect but there is doom for those who lie outside of his good graces so avail yourself saints Avail yourself of what we call here the castle triad, if you will. Find your hiding place in Christ. Consider Him and Him alone as preservation from trouble. And embrace His surrounding arms that shout deliverance for your soul. And This leads me to the final section of this great psalm, section 4. We'll call this section Counselor and Encouragement. And reading now verses 8 through 11, notice before we do that God Himself, the voice of God and the voice of wisdom, interjects. David has been the narrator thus far, and now God responds dramatically in verse 8 by saying, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule. Without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And here we have a double triad. First of all, we'll call it the Wonderful Counselor, an ode to Christmas there. In Isaiah chapter 9, a wonderful counselor triad. Notice who Jesus is, who God Almighty through His Word and Spirit are to us. I will instruct you, teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. He is our instructor. He is our teacher. He is our counselor. He knows and reveals the way that we should go. And he counsels, guides, and corrects upon its very path. My rod and my staff, they will guide you, even though the valley is steeped in the darkness of the shadow of death. Nevertheless, with God's eye upon us, we will not stray, if he is our instructor, our teacher, and our counselor. A glorious tripartite way of describing The influence of God on the heart of a repentant man. Amazing. But it doesn't end here. That being triad number five. David concludes with triad number six. We'll call this godly joy. He says, verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So what is a fitting response to what has been revealed so far? This three part emphasis of the depth and weight of sin. The three part emphasis of its effects on the human soul, a hellish groaning under its weight. And then a threefold confession of sin or a threefold description of sin that God graciously grants the heart of man to embrace healing and salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. And then again, this promise of security in the same as a, as a three-part description of the safety of God, a hiding place, a preservation, a surrounding place, and, and, then, and then a three-fold description of who God is to us and how He comforts, guides, instructs, disciplines, and counsels us as an instructor, a teacher, and a counselor. What is a fitting response? Well, David chooses to answer that question By describing worship in three words, or three terms, he says, be glad in the Lord, rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. A gladness, a rejoicing, and a shouting for joy is the appropriate response. But if I may add, this triad is is maybe compound here. There's also a threefold description of who we are in Christ. As we understand this text and its new covenant fulfillment, we are those who trust in the Lord, we are the righteous, and we are upright in heart. It's amazing to see the summary contrast to in this section, whereas the effects of sin were so debilitating on the soul which thrust us, as I mentioned, into a Job-like experience, but one we justly deserve. Our bones are waxing away, and there's a groaning and a crying out, a roaring all day long, and our strength is dried up and comparable to a desert longing for even a refreshing drop from the heavens. Contrasted to that is this overwhelming joy that floods and overflows the heart of the believer when he has received the grace of Almighty God. A gladness, a rejoicing. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, David says, but what surrounds us now? No longer desert and famine and sword, but we're surrounded by the steadfast love of Almighty God. We trust in Him. Our circumstance has dramatically changed. These summaries, this summary of con contrast is amazing here we were once those who were incorrigible and blind and deaf and dumb in our sin dead in our transgressions as the bible in ephesians describes us later but now we are counseled to not be like a horse or mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle that is we have the opportunity not to be a beast an unreasonable incorrigible being before the lord but instead to be his student to be his son, to be his daughter, to be his adopted apprentice, co-ruling and reigning with him, an emissary and ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A mule has become a man. A horse has become one who can articulate the master's own words. It's amazing to see. And as we close this message, Emphasizing again the section number four, counselor and encouragement. We have a description of who God is to us. and We have the encouragement to offer to Him appropriate praise. Let's close this psalm by those two New Testament references. First of all, turn with me to Romans chapter 4. And in this section, as I've mentioned before, David was privileged to write sometimes as the lineage of Christ, a fly in the wall of redemptive history. Thus, his words are more often than any other that I know have picked up in the New Testament and reiterated. So here when Paul is describing to us what Psalm 32 dramatically anticipated, that is, new covenant glory revealed. So again, Psalm 32 dramatically anticipated, new covenant glory We see this so clear when we find that Paul quotes from Psalm 32 in describing our own justification now. Chapter 4, verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. And so we see there, allusions picked up from that very psalm. When David suffered under counterfeit coverings for sin and the deceit of his own spirit, he was only adding debt and deception to his situation. But when he just confessed his sin and pleaded upon the grace through faith of Almighty God alone, then his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. And verse 6, this is emphasized when Paul says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And here's the quote. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Amazing. Turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 10. That example of how Psalm 32 anticipates new covenant glory answers the question, about justification, it's justification not by works, by faith. And then Hebrews answers the question by drawing the covenants together so beautifully. In its declaration and description, Hebrews answers the question, faith in what? And in Hebrews 10 verse 19 and following, we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Here, David, uh, here the author refers to the kind of assurance that David was celebrating. And it's assurance that's ultimately found in Christ. In verse 22, he describes it as a drawing near of a true heart. Remember David's description? The righteous one, the one made true by God's hand. The drawing near of a true heart in full assurance of faith. And here we have an emphasis again on this blessed assurance that is available for us if we are caught up in the glorious inertia of redemption, if you will. If we find ourselves compelled by a message like this, prompted by the Holy Spirit to confess sin, to place ourselves at the mercy of God, to throw ourselves before the mercy seat to plead the blood of Christ alone, then we could sing with the great hymn writer, Francis Crosby, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. You may be familiar with these words. The chorus reads, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. The last two verses conclude on this theme of submission to the Lord. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending Bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. And David reminds us, surrounded in His steadfast love. I'm reminded of hymns like this and songs we've even sung today that if they're worth anything, they're just another format to say in part what God through David gloriously declared, the deeply comforting truth that there is blessed assurance in God's only way, truth, and life, and we know Him as our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we would find ourselves in submission to your holiness today. I pray that you would take these words off the pages and write them indelibly by your own finger on the tables of our hearts as you wrote your commandments in stone. Because unless the new covenant promise is fulfilled that you will write the law upon our hearts, we wander aimlessly with no compass lost and hell-bent in this world. But when through Jesus Christ... The gospel has been ours. When we awaken to the joy of our salvation at the revelation of our sin, both the reality of it in our soul and the reality of it washed away in Christ's blood, when that dawns on us, Lord, we have a lifetime and an eternity of worship to look forward to. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we, like David, can join in gladness, rejoicing, and song. Lord, I pray today as this message is brought to a close that if there are any here who need the joy of salvation in the first place or who need to return to the joy of their salvation, I pray that they would be led to do so by their counselor, by their instructor, by you, their Heavenly Father, bringing them back to teach them your ways and to give them that blessed assurance that Jesus is theirs. If they confess their sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and experience the glorious salvation that will secure him until your soon return or until the day you call us home. And oh, how we look forward to that moment to praise you forever. It's in your name we pray, pray, dear Jesus. Amen.